got the outline. Um, I think the ushers have some more. If anybody needs one, just raise your hand. And um, Ricardo needs one down here. Anybody else? A few more. Thank you guys for helping with that. In fact, a few more on this side if we've got. Great, thank you. Thanks, Jimmy. Thank you. Nice. It doesn't take a funeral to remind us that we live in a very broken world, does it? Uh, we feel this brokenness daily in our bodies, especially those of us who are reaching various ages. Uh, we feel it in our relationships, even in our own families, um, people we love, the pain, the brokenness that we experience. Uh, we feel it when we read the news. But when death takes a loved one, it's especially acute, isn't it? We buried Carol's mom two months ago. Uh, Jacob and Hannah said goodbye <clears throat> to Jacob's dad a month and a half ago uh, after a long battle he had with cancer, I believe it was. A former co-worker of mine lost her husband, only 40 years old. It's like, my goodness. And then another co-worker former co-worker passed away all within the last couple months. So many things seem to grind to a halt when a loved one dies. Dreams die, grief sets in. I'm getting, is it okay? I'm getting a lot of feedback. Okay. The future seems foggy and uncertain, and what seemed so important last week suddenly just doesn't matter at all, does it, when someone we love leaves this world? It was no different for the 11 disciples on the Saturday following the crucifixion of their master. Their Messiah, their hope of deliverance from the world, the hope of a different life than the same old humdrum lay shattered at the foot of a Roman cross. Jesus had bled profusely from the crown of thorns smashed down on his head, the spikes through his hands and feet. His back had been filleted from the Roman beating. The blood gushed from his side from the pierce, piercing of the sword. Saturday must have been the worst day of the disciples' lives. Sunday morning started no differently. The gospel writers tell us that early Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and Joanna and another Mary and some other women made their way to the tomb. And children... What do you think the women were expecting to find when they got there? What were they preparing for? What were they gearing themselves up for emotionally as they were gearing to the tomb, for the, as they were heading for the tomb, do you think? We know the end of the story because we've heard it and read it so many times, don't we? But they, they did not know how this was going to turn out. They had watched him bleed to death on Friday afternoon. They had seen Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus take the body, bury it, put it in the tomb. The big stone rolled in front to, to close it off. There was no light chit-chat on the way to the tomb that morning. Hey, what did you do over the weekend, Mary? There was none of that. They were preparing themselves to find the battered corpse of a man they deeply loved. They had come with their spices. They wanted to wash the body and express their love 
and their grief in that way. Bracing themselves for the horrible sight they would face. And then one wait, who's going to roll the, roll the big stone away? Are we even going to get in? No one, not a single one of them had even the faintest thought about resurrection. Right? That was the farthest thing from their minds. They came with one expectation, and that was to find a cold, stiff, lifeless corpse. They were not at all prepared for the multiple surprises that awaited them. The first surprise was the earthquake on the way, and they're wondering, what in the world? Where did that come from? Second surprise is they get there, and the stones rolled away, and that's weird. Well, well, that'll help us do what we came to do. We can get in, take care of the body. Third surprise is when they enter the tomb, but the corpse is missing. How, how can we wash and care for a body that's missing? None of the ladies turned and said, see, I told you he was going to rise from the dead. That was not on their minds. And you remember a little later, Mary Magdalene is outside the tomb. See, she's, she sees Jesus not knowing it's Jesus, thinking it's the gardener, and says to him, sir, have you taken the body? Tell me where it is so I can care for it. Nobody's thinking resurrection. They all knew, just like we do, that dead men don't come to life again. And then the fourth surprise, they look back in and there are two men, angels, dressed in dazzling white garments. And that scared them to death. And the angel said, why, why are you looking for the living here among the dead? Look, look at where they laid him. He's not here. He's risen. Don't you remember how he told you that the Son of Man must, excuse me, <clears throat> must be delivered into the hands of sinful men that he must be crucified and on the third day rise again. Mark tells us that they were so afraid and astonished that they fled for the tomb that they did not know what to think. And when they finally did get around to going back and telling the 11 disciples, for the disciples, their words seemed like an idle tale and they did not believe them. These disciples and those women were hardcore realists, just like, just like we are, right? Like us, they didn't believe in fairy tales. They didn't believe in dead people coming back to life. Even when Jesus did appear to them on that first Easter evening, in spite of what the ladies told them, had told them earlier about the tomb, their reaction was not, hey, here's Jesus' resurrection. They thought he was a ghost. And so Jesus says to them, look at my hand, look at my hands and feet. Do you see these scars? Look at my side. It is I. It really is I. Here, touch me. Goats, ghosts don't have flesh and bones. Touch me, feel me. I'm real. What, what do you have to eat? Piece of fish? Okay, here, give me a piece of fish. You're not going to see this piece of fish go down through my translucent body. I am flesh and bones alive. Jesus was truly alive again, resurrected. And that event, the resurrection of Christ, along with the crucifixion, this is the pivotal event in all of human history, is it not? The resurrection on Sunday morning changed the course of history. 
And it was the guarantee and confirmation that what Jesus had set out to do on Friday, on Good Friday afternoon, was indeed accomplished. On the cross, and we've been singing about it this morning, right? On the cross, Christ bore in his own body all our sins, all our guilt. The holy and righteous wrath of God, which was stored up against each one of us because of our ongoing rebellion and God neglect and our snubbing our nose at his rightful authority and rule over us. That righteous judgment, which was targeted for each one of us like a heat-seeking missile, God redirected all of that onto Christ. Picture 10,000 Trident II missiles raining down on Mount Calvary at noon on Good Friday when darkness fell upon the Son of God, stretched out on the cross as His heavenly Father crushed Him in your place and in my place. Well, did it work? Did Christ truly accomplish that? Or, or do we still have to pay our own way? Do we still have to, man, I, I've got to work for it. It wasn't enough. The answer to that came Easter Sunday morning, didn't it? When Jesus burst out of that tomb, not half dead on a stretcher, needing CPR and oxygen and a wheelchair. No, he came out fully alive, never to die again, having conquered death. And the grave. And so the resurrection is the confirmation, the exclamation point on Jesus' words it is finished. For every one of us who trust in him, we are freed forever from the penalty of our sins because of what Christ did on Good Friday, and the resurrection guarantees and proves that. But the resurrection also guarantees that we are freed from the power of sin. Last week we sang the song Shout Hosanna and one of the lines is the same power that rolled the stone away, that same power alive in us today. As Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too have been raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 4 tells us, to have ever increasing victory over sin in our lives, to be conformed to the image of Christ. But there's still more. So the resurrection is the proof that Christ's death has freed us from the penalty of sin. It's freeing us now from the power of sin. And thirdly, one day, it will also free us from the very presence of sin in heaven. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. What is our future inheritance that Christ's resurrection bought for us, purchased for us, and guarantees for us? Peter makes a connection for us this way, and Aaron read these verses at the, at the beginning, but let's read them once again. Through the resurrection, Peter says, God has caused us to be born again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead unto an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for it. You see the connection that Peter's making between Christ's resurrection and our future inheritance? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection unto an inheritance, our future inheritance, that is imperishable, unfading, and undefiled. When my mom passed away a few years ago, we received some inheritance money from my parents. And it was wonderful to receive. But we all know that there is no guarantee that any of that money is going to be there when we need it, right? Just one glance at the stock market gives us as much certainty as the 10-day weather forecast. But when Peter, when God talks about the inheritance he has prepared for us, it's an entirely different thing. Christ's resurrection launched the reversal of the curse that the entire creation fell into back in Genesis chapter 3. And that, that affects everything we do every day. We are under the curse. But this great reversal that started on Easter Sunday morning will ultimately culminate in the summing up of all things in Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. The resurrection has set us on a trajectory. All things will be summed up in Christ and that will be in the new heavens and the new earth, which is what you and I have to look forward to. So if you'll turn with me now to Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, uh, we're going to focus camp in those two chapters for most of our time this morning. And while you're doing that, let me just mention a couple of things that heaven is not. A couple of things heaven is not. And also, first is a quote from Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. <clears throat> Highly recommend this. Very helpful, um, this book on heaven. Randy Alcorn writes, tragically, most Christians do not find their joy in Christ and heaven. In fact, many people find no, no joy at all when they think about heaven. A pastor once confessed to me, whenever I think about heaven, it makes me depressed. I'd rather just cease to exist when I die. Why, I asked. Pastor responded, I can't stand the thought of that endless tedium. To float around in the clouds with nothing to do but strum on a harp? It's all so terribly boring. Heaven doesn't sound much better than hell. I'd rather be annihilated than spend eternity in a place like that. Another author writes, Nearly every Christian I have spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. Have you ever thought that? No? We have settled on an image of never-ending sing-along in the sky, one great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. And our heart sinks forever and ever. That's it? That's the good news? And then we sigh and feel guilty that we're not more spiritual. We lose heart and we turn once more to this present world to find what life we can. Have you ever thought those thoughts? Probably so, right? Brothers and sisters, somehow we have gotten this all backwards. We seem to think that this life of 70 to 80 years is the main event, the apex of our existence, and that eternity fall, the follow will be, well, sort of endless reruns and boredom. And Reality is exactly the opposite. The good things we experience in this life are merely a preview. They're a shadow. They're the hors d'oeuvres. They are the foretaste of all that God has prepared for those who love him and trust him. 
Brothers and sisters, the main event is yet to come, and it will not disappoint us for even a moment throughout all eternity. Young people, you may think that virtual reality is awesome. Let me tell you, it doesn't hold a candle to the ultimate reality that will be ours in the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray before we look, look into Revelation 21. Heavenly Father, we ask you, would you help us to see in these few short minutes some clear glimpses of what awaits us, what you have prepared for all of us who love you in the new heavens, the new earth. Lord, stir our imagination, we pray. Lord, teach us, help us to set our hope completely on the amazing grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In his name we ask this. So heaven, what will it be like? First point, heaven is a physical place and heaven will come to our renovated earth. Heaven is a physical place that will come to our renovated earth. Look at the first couple verses in Revelation 21. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Heaven is going to come to this earth, brothers and sisters. Now, I don't have time to defend or expand on this right now, but when verse 1 says there will be a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, I believe it does not mean that the current heavens and earth will be annihilated, but rather that the present heaven and earth will be completely renovated. Okay, This heaven and earth, there will be destruction, but it's going to be renovated to the new heavens and the new earth. God is going to fulfill his intentions from the original creation way back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Now, we're not going back to the Garden of Eden. We're going forward to something even better than the Garden. The Garden was beautiful. It was very good. It was perfect in the sense of being free from sin before sin came in from the outside. But there's a place where we are going, brothers and sisters, which is not only free from sin, but absolutely free from there ever being the possibility of sin. And the relationship we will have with God in heaven will be even more intimate, more personal than what Adam and Eve had. God is preparing for us an even more beautiful, a glorious city in which there will be a garden. There's so many images from Genesis 1 and 2 are found here in the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 24. Heaven will be a physical place and it will come to a renovated earth. Secondly, heaven is, above all, the presence of God and of the Lamb. Look at verses 3 and 4. John writes, I heard a loud voice from the heavens saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. God dwelling with his people is one of the great themes of the entire Bible from from the Garden of Eden, right, where God would come and, and meet in the cool of the evening and walk and talk with Adam and Eve until sin broke that fellowship. Then God came in the tabernacle in the wilderness. 
And then they made the temple and God resided in a special way in the temple. This is the theme throughout the scriptures. But in the new heavens and the new earth, it won't be a physical temple or tabernacle that houses the presence of God. God himself will be with us. Verse 3 says, three, says it three times so we don't miss the point. Behold, the dwelling place of God and dwelling place, that's, that is the word tabernacle. The tabernacle of God, his dwelling place, will be with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. You remember in the Old Testament temple, the Holy of Holies separated the presence of God. The people could not enter. Once a year, the high priest alone could go in. But in heaven, there's no separation There's no separation between God and us. In fact, in verse 22, I think it is, of this chapter, there's no temple anymore because God himself is the temple. The Lamb himself are the temple. So in heaven, there are no limits, no boundaries confining the glory and presence of God. His glories will fill all of the new Jerusalem. You'll never have to go anywhere to see or experience the glories of God because it will just fill the entire new heavens and the new earth. You remember Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration whose face shone like the sun? His garments became white as light. And in Revelation 1.16 in the vision of Jesus, it says his face was like the sun shining in its strength. That's what heaven will be like, just filled with the glory of the face and beauty of Christ and of God. Everywhere we go, there's no temple because God himself is the temple. There's some really wonderful personal imagery here in these verses. If you look at verse 4, as as John tries to describe what will it be like to be there in the presence of God, one of the first things he says in verse 4 is that he will wipe away every tear from, from our eyes. How many children does God have? Millions, millions, a billion? But he's not going to dispatch his angels to wipe our tears away. As our Heavenly Father, he will reserve that privilege for himself with each one of us personally that he will personally wipe away every tear. Amazing to think about him, is it not? He's a God big enough to prepare a place for a billion children, and yet personal and caring for us, every one of us, enough that he himself will wipe away every tear. And you know, his care for us right now is the same. We don't see it face to face at this point. But he, even today, he is the God of all mercies and all comfort. And he cares for you personally, just like he will in the kingdom to come. The culmination of this glory of being in the presence of God is summarized in five little words in chapter 22, verse 4, where it says, they will see his face. Brothers and sisters, we will see face of God. We will be in the very presence of God. That is the greatest thing about heaven.
Everything here is, is by faith, right? It's not yet by sight. But when we see, when we get there, we will see him face to face. So heaven is a physical place that will come to our renovated earth. Heaven is above all the presence of God and of the Lamb. And then thirdly, heaven is the absence of anything and everything evil and painful. Verse 20, verse, chapter 21, verses 4 and 5 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are faithful and true. We used to sing a song. Uh, years ago, when I first entered PDI, Sovereign Grace, no more sadness, no more pain, no more sadness, no more suffering, no more tears, no more sin, no more sickness, no injustice, no more death. Stop and reflect on probably just one week of our lives. There's plenty of all this, right, that we experience. With its share of pain and sadness, suffering and tears, sinful attitudes in our own hearts that grieve us, that damage our relationships. To meditate on this truth that one day we get to heaven, it will be completely absent of all these things. God will wipe away every tear, no pain, no crying, no mourning, no death. That in itself is is enough to fill our hearts with joy even in the midst of our current tears. Everything related to the curse from Genesis chapter 3, everything will be no more. Chapter 22 verse 3 says that no longer will there be anything accursed. There will be no sinners in heaven at all. Ex-sinners, yes. Ex-sinners, the likes of you and me. But no current sinners. Sin will be gone. Completely gone. Don't stop battling your sin now just because you anticipate it being gone later because, brothers and sisters, part of what is necessary in getting there is continuing to fight the fight of faith against sin and temptation. But never lose sight of the fact that God's glorious promise is that heaven will be the absence of everything and anything evil and painful. D, heaven is a place of unimaginable glory and ever-increasing joy. I'm not going to read verses 9 through 21 uh, here, but when they describe the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, some of it's metaphorical and and, um, figures of speech, but not all of it. This is describing the glories of the new heaven, so glorious and wealthy that we will be, and it's describing the place where the church, where God's people will dwell. This is the church. This is the bride of Christ. Glorious and unimaginably great. This is is the one Christ will present to himself. the, The fulfillment of Ephesians 5 when it says that Christ himself gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify her, that he might present her on his wedding day to himself in all her glory, 
having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Brothers and sisters, those words will be true of us someday. No more stains of sin, no more pride, but total purity and utter delight in our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. So those are some things that set forth for us. What, what will heaven be like? Now, what will we be like? And I'll move quickly here through these. We've already made some reference to this. So let's just highlight a few aspects. First, we will still be finite and physical creatures. We will be still finite and physical creatures. You and I will never be self-sufficient or self-existent. We will never have life in and of ourselves. All through eternity even, we will depend on God's sustaining grace, on God's provision, on God's, God's strength to keep us, to sustain us and give us life. Beginning of chapter 22, verse 1 and 2, John writes, The angel showed me the river of the water of life. Remember that the theme of river comes throughout Scripture too, that waters the people of God. John, the, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Remember the tree of life back in the Garden of Eden? Here it is again in the everlasting kingdom, sustaining us, bringing healing and strength for all eternity. The river of life sustaining us, the tree of life. We will not be self-dependent. We will always be God-dependent. It's a wonderful thing that will be true throughout eternity. And we will be very physical, brothers and sisters. When some people think about heaven as being the release of our spirits from these bodies, as humans, we are not souls stuck in a human body. Now, we're in fallen bodies right now, but God created us material and immaterial, body and spirit, and we will always be that union of, of body and spirit throughout all eternity. Jesus' body, his resurrection body, was a very physical body, correct? Flesh and blood scars he ate and drank, our bodies will be like that. We are not going to be souls floating through heaven. Heaven's going to be a very physical place. We, just to assure you, we will not be sitting on clouds playing harps, okay? That is not what heaven is about. Heaven will be a very physical place and we will still be finite creatures enjoying an infinite God. Secondly, we will be sinless like Christ. This has already been hinted. Well, actually, we didn't read verse 8. 21 verse 8, it says, as, the cowardly, the fa- as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And verse 27 says, But nothing unclean will ever enter the city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Brothers and sisters, Christ will finish. He will remove sin from us. 
It's the promise of Romans 8.29 that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5 will be sanctified fully body, soul, and spirit. This is the hope we have of the new heavens and the new earth. Thirdly, we will be satisfied in God. We will be satisfied in God. A promise that is repeated throughout the Bible is that God and God alone is the one who can satisfy our soul's deepest longings. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus himself said in John 7, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But one of the characteristics of our life as believers now on this side of eternity is that our hunger and thirst may be partially quenched and allayed, but it's never fully satisfied here, is it? That will wait till we see Jesus face to face. And one of the paradoxes, though, I think that will continue in heaven is while we will be finally fully satisfied in him, we will never look anywhere else to satisfy our soul's longings, yet we will also come, we will never come to the place of losing our thirst for him. One, one of the things that is strange about thirst, okay, you, a, a hot day, you're working outside, and you come in and get an ice-cold glass of, of lemonade to quench your thirst. But I don't really want my thirst to be completely slaked because the pleasure in satisfying it is, as much, is much greater than the pleasure of having it satisfied. Isn't there something just being satisfied, that thirst being satisfied? We, we, we want more. Don't satisfy me completely. I want to keep being satisfied. And to be in heaven with an infinite God, we will be finite. He will constantly satisfy our deepest longings. But with every, every longing that is satisfied, we will have a new capacity for more satisfaction and more to be satisfied. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. The fountain that supplies the joy and delight which the soul has in seeing God is an infinite fountain. Our understanding may extend itself as far as it will. It does but take its flight into an endless expanse and dive into a bottomless ocean. It may discover more and more of the beauty and loveliness of God, but it will never exhaust the fountain. We can never by soaring and ascending come to the height of the love of God. We can never by descending come to the depth of the love of God or by measuring know the length and breadth of it. Let the thoughts and desires extend themselves as they will. Here is space enough for them in which they may expand forever and ever. How blessed therefore are they who do see God who come to this exhaustless fountain after they have had the pleasure of beholding God, the face of God, millions of ages, it will not grow a dull story. The relish of this delight will be as exquisite as ever. Brothers and sisters, we will be satisfied, but never stop being satisfied for all eternity in the presence of God. Let me briefly mention a few things that we will be doing 
and it won't be again the harps. It won't be an endless church service. First will be the joy of discovery and productivity. Uh, There's a verse tucked away at verse 24 to 26 in chapter 21 of John. Interesting comment says, "By By the light of the Lamb will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, into the city, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. That does not sound like inactivity, does it? There is activity and productivity and discovery and creativity and people and the nations bringing their what their creativity and production into the city of the new Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, we are create we were created to be productive, to be active, to be fruitful, to be creative back in the garden. That will continue throughout all eternity. And when we think about discovery, you know what I mean by the joy of discovery? I know some of you do. But when I read or watch, a, say, a special on the human body, it doesn't matter how evolutionary-minded they may be, but when they talk about the intricacies and amazing complexities of the human eye, for example, or what goes on in our bloodstream and our blood cells, or the amount of data stored in the DNA in that little zygote, that's going to determine the features of that person that they develop throughout their lifetime, I experience an exhilaration and worship of God. It's so exciting to discover what God has made. And he's given us the ability to find it and discover it and be amazed at it. It's the same in our quiet times, isn't it? Or listening to a message, the Holy Spirit opens our minds and hearts to some new and deeper understanding of him. And it's, it's invigorating. It's a rush, an exhilaration that fills our being to learn and discover. Heaven, eternal life is going to be like that. Day after day of the delights of discovering new and deeper things that we did not know about the character of God, about the vast universe of galaxies and planets and solar systems, about the microscopic world of atoms and molecules and DNA and chromosomes. We will never for all eternity exhaust the infinite glories of our God. There will never be a moment of boredom, never a yawn of disinterest. And think about it. If we are finite and he is infinite, can we ever get to the end of God's infinite greatness? We never will. The joy of discovery and productivity, the privilege of Number two, of ministering and ruling. It's like God created us in the garden to rule and care for this creation. That will continue on. The Bible says, Revelation 22, verse 5, they shall reign. We will reign with him forever. 1 Corinthians 6, we will judge the world. We will judge the angels. I think that we will do space travel. If God made everything for us to enjoy his glories. There's so much we have not seen what he has made, right? I believe, a little of a speculation, but I think there's good reason to think God will give us the opportunity in ruling the universe and ruling his creation for space travel. There's so much we haven't seen that he wants us to see in order to glorify him and enjoy what he has done. 
Brothers and sisters, it will not be boring. I can assure you of that. It will not be inactive. We will be productive, creative, administering his universe. And then the pleasure of worshiping and all that we do. There will be plenty of times of singing, I know. But worship in heaven is going to be so much will be worship in the middle of all that productivity and activity and creativity and discovery and fellowship and enjoyment. All of that, we will worship our great God. I'm going to wrap it up here in this way. On, on your sheet, if you have a minute late, some later, just looking at some of the implications. How does this motivate us? How does this hope of our eternal inheritance motivate us? You can look at those later. But the fifth one, E, it motivates us to proclaim the glorious gospel of those, to those who don't yet know Jesus, right? And if you're here this Easter Sunday morning and you know, and Ron, if you and the band want to come back, If you're here this Easter Sunday and you know that you are separated from God because of your sin, you know that if you were to leave this place today and, God forbid, but you had a car accident on the way home and it killed you and you stood before the Lord, you know that you would not go to the heaven we're talking about right now, but you would experience God's judgment and you would end up in hell. Separated from God and everything that is good forever. If you know that that describes your current state in your relationship with the God of the universe, my friend, today can be the day that all of that changes for you. That all can change today. What better day to come to Christ than Easter Sunday to believe in him, embrace him, as the one who died on the cross in your place on Good Friday. He took your place as your substitute to bear God's wrath against your sin for you. And then he rose again from the dead on Easter Sunday morning as proof that God had accepted what he did on your behalf on the cross, that God will forgive all your sins and declare you righteous and acceptable in his sight forever. Jesus is the one who one day will come again for all who are trusting him and dwell with us forever in his perfect kingdom. My friend, would you trust in him? John ends his his revelation in this way. The spirit and the bride, the bride is the church, that's all of us. We are saying to you, my friend, Come, come to Jesus. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. If you are thirsty for the water of life, for forgiveness, for acceptance, would you come to Christ today? Take the water of life without cost. And then Jesus himself testifies to these things and says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you for Good Friday when he bore our sins. Thank you for the hope 
that is guaranteed because of the cross and resurrection that one day we will be in the new heavens and the new earth with you forever. Lord, we pray that for those who are here today who have never been born again, never trusted in Christ, Holy Spirit, would you work, draw them to Christ now, we pray. Save them. In Christ's name.